Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here this morning. For those joining us out in the patio, a special welcome to you. For those online, we always appreciate you tuning in. For some reason this morning, uh, I've had uh, mountains on my, mount, on my mind quite a bit. And if you think about mountains, isn't there something about mountains and spiritual experiences that go hand in hand? Mountains and spiritual experiences experiences. They go hand in hand. You know, there's something about uh, going up to a mountain and feeling closer to God. Uh, your quiet time seemed to be better up in the mountains, right? You, you could spend more time praying. Uh, prayer times just kind of fly by up in the mountains. You can get so immersed in God's Word up in the mountains surrounded by nature. And so it's no mistake then that when we think about Jesus, he spent a lot of time in the mountains with his father. And that's why it's no coincidence that a lot of campsites, Christian conference centers, are up in the mountains. In fact, the vast majority of campsites are way up in the mountains. And uh, here in Southern California, and all of California for that matter, we're so blessed to be surrounded by so many beautiful mountains. Our middle school students, they returned home from Forest Home Christian Camp on Friday. And I've been talking to the parents and also to some of the students. And can I just tell you that they had an incredible week. I think every single one of them experienced God in a very special way. In talking with their parents, the parents kept saying, wow, my child had the most incredible week. My child can't stop talking about camp. Forest Home is in a tiny little town called Forest Falls in the San Bernardino Mountains. It's a beautiful place just below Big Bear. And uh, I'm seeing Tim and Alexis Callahan right here. Uh, they, they led our junior high students this whole past week, and uh, our students were in the best hands possible. Can we thank Tim and Alexis? <laughs> so our junior high students are back. This morning, our high school students departed. Just about, oh, an hour ago, we sent them off in the parking lot. They are on the road on the way to Hume Lake Christian camp. Hume Lake is in the Sequoia National Forest, about an hour and a half east of Fresno. Hume Lake, that region, is a beautiful part of California, and I trust that our students are going to have an amazing week ahead. Uh, my son Andrew graduated from college two Sundays ago, okay? and I mention that because his school is in one of the most picturesque, most scenic spots in all of California, Santa Cruz. And the campus of UC Santa Cruz is in the middle of these tall redwoods. So picture yourself on the campus of UC Santa Cruz amidst these incredibly beautiful redwoods and then looking down and seeing the Pacific Ocean. 
That's the scene up in Santa Cruz. And the reason why I mentioned Santa Cruz is Santa Cruz is also home to another wonderful, beautiful campsite called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is located right in the middle of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Speaking of Mount Hermon, there's also a real Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the name of a campsite, but there's an actual mountain called Mount Hermon. Not in California. It's on the border of Lebanon and Syria, near the northeast border of Israel. And Mount Hermon is referenced many times throughout Scripture. Here's one reference. In Psalm 89, follow along as I read up here, Psalm 89, verses 11 and 12, it says this, The heavens are yours, and the earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. You created it all. You created north and south. Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon Praise your name. There's something about mountains and spiritual experiences. That's the backdrop of today's message as we continue in our series through the book of Mark. And the title of this morning's message is First the Suffering, Then the Glory. First the Suffering, Then the Glory. We're going to be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. And we'll be in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And maybe you've heard about the transfiguration of Jesus. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. We'll look at this incredible, amazing, supernatural event this morning. This event where Christ appeared in his full glory as the Son of God. And during the transfiguration, he revealed himself as Messiah, fulfilling the law and the prophets. And this supernatural event took place on a mountain top. There's something about mountains and spiritual experiences. Now, we are currently in Act 2 of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us. In Act 1, if you recall, the crowds, they see Jesus perform one miracle after another, one healing after another. They see him cast out one demon after another, and they ask themselves the question, who is this Jesus? They are amazed by what they see. We are now in Act 2. Act 1 is behind us now. That was chapters 1 through 8a. We are right in the middle of Act 2, and in Act 2, there's a different question that's being asked. And this question is not being asked by the crowds anymore. The question is being asked by the disciples of Jesus. And the question is this, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Well, the title of today's message gives us the answer. What does it mean? First, the suffering then the glory. But it's important to know this. You cannot have glory without the suffering first. So let's begin. In chapter 9, we'll pick it up in verse 2. I'll read to you verses 2 and 3. 
Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. So we're told here that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. Earlier, we talked about Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon. Now, scholars are not exactly sure which mountain is being referenced here in this passage, but it's one of those two mountains, most likely, either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Tabor has an elevation of about 1,900 feet, 1,900 feet. That's decent. It's in the foothills. In fact, similar to Paradise, the city of Paradise, up beyond Sacramento, Paradise has an elevation of about 1,800 feet. So they would call that like into the foothills of the mountains. Mount Hermon has an elevation of over 9,200 feet. So there's a dramatic difference here, much higher than Mount Tabor. Every morning when I walk out of my house and I look north, do you know what I see? I see the top of Mount Baldy. Mount Baldy has an elevation of about 10,100 feet. I've been up there to the top, and I have a picture to prove it because they have a plaque up there that tells you that you've reached the top of Mount Baldy. And so we don't know which mountain it was, Tabor or Hermon. It's one of those two, but it says here that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. So I think maybe it was Mount Hermon. Now let's think about this. Whether it was Tabor or Hermon, regardless, that's a long walk. That's a long hike up a mountain. It's not a hike that you finish in 30 minutes. Think about what it would take for Jesus and those three disciples to walk all the way up Mount Hermon. 9,200 feet. This past week I was listening to a podcast and the person being interviewed said that uh, when he changed his whole lifestyle and he became healthier and started eating better, his whole approach to meetings changed. So, rather than sitting down for his meetings, he started asking people who he would meet with, hey, can we meet while we walk? That's pretty cool, to meet while you walk, right? And so I could just see my staff saying, oh, no, Tim, don't get any ideas. But let's think about that. Great conversations happen when you walk. In fact, I know at least one walking group here at our church. They get together and they walk and talk. Some of the best conversations happen when you walk. Jesus didn't own a car. Do you know that? Jesus didn't own a car, so he walked everywhere. And the three disciples who walked with Jesus more than any other were Peter, James, and John because they were his inner circle. 
And so imagine how many hours it took Jesus, Peter, James, and John to walk up that mountain. Can you imagine the conversations? Jesus, what are you doing? Where are you taking us? Come on. Where's the snacks? We need to rest. It's been six hours. Come on. So they must have been wondering, where is Jesus taking us? The reason why Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to that mountaintop was because as his inner circle, they would experience some of the most significant events in Jesus' ministry. Not only that, those three would go on to become key figures in the early church. They were hand-selected by Jesus to have a mountaintop experience like no other. They were the select few to witness supernatural acts that no one else in the history of the world would witness. Let's go on here and look at verses 4 through 8. So there they were on that mountaintop, and in verse 4 it says this, then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. This is important. Why Moses and why Elijah? Why did they appear there for a moment with Jesus? Well, Moses, he represented the law in the Old Testament. Elijah, he represented the prophets. Both found fulfillment in Jesus. See, that's why later on in the New Testament letters, there's an emphasis on not going back to the law. The law can never save us. The law will never save us. Now, I've heard feel-good stories on the news about how uh, Police officers, every now and then, they will randomly stop people on the roads, but not to give them a ticket, to commend them for driving safely. Now, I've heard that. I've never gotten stopped and said, thank you, sir, for driving so nicely. So I, I've never witnessed that. I've heard that on occasion, police officers will, will commend drivers for driving good. But let's face it, the reality is we get stopped, we get a ticket. We are reminded that we fall short of the law. You see, the law was never meant to save us. The law is there only to show us that we fall so short of it. So the law in the Old Testament could not save and that's why Moses appeared 
next to Jesus as a reminder that the law was there, but it pointed to Jesus. Elijah appeared as a reminder that the prophets, they spoke as God's mouthpieces about the coming Messiah. What God was saying to Peter, James, and John on that mountaintop was this. Yes, Moses was great. Yes, Elijah was great. Their impact on the history of God's people was amongst the greatest. In fact, Peter was so awestruck when he saw Moses and Elijah. Here's what Peter said. Whoa! This is wonderful. This is awesome. And then he said, uh, quick, we, we got to make three memorials. And I love the way Mark uh, describes this. You know, how he says, Peter said this because he didn't know what else to say. Have you ever been so uh, nervous about meeting someone that you have no idea what to say? You, 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 your tongue is just tied. You're just awestruck. Now, oftentimes, we point to a passage like this, and we kind of criticize Peter. And Peter is oftentimes kind of like uh, the recipient of a lot of our, our criticism. Oh, Peter, he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's, he's talking too much. And we often say that. And pastors, we like to preach about stuff like that. But let's think about this. Only three people in the entire history of the world were selected to see Jesus on that mountaintop. So who am I to judge Peter? Who am I to criticize Peter? If it was me up there, I don't know what I would have said. Only three people in the entire history of the world got to see Jesus transformed. And when God spoke, and when he said, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. You have to imagine Peter, James, and John. They stood there and they got a glimpse of what they were actually being told. You see, on that mountaintop, God gave Peter, James, and John this glimpse of Jesus' full glory. But again, what's the title of our message? First, the suffering, then the glory. It was only a glimpse. It didn't last long. As spectacular as that transfiguration was, it was a reminder that there was still much more suffering to come. In fact, look at verse 9. As they went down the mountain, he told them not to say anything to anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves. But they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why did the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus res responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do, you, why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? 
But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the Scriptures predicted. Now, picture this. Peter, James, and John have just witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. They are in awe. Now they head down the mountain, those several hours back down the mountain. And they ask Jesus, and they talk to him, and Jesus says, don't say a single word to anyone. And that included the other nine disciples. So Peter, James, and John were to keep this to themselves. Have you ever been put in a situation where maybe somebody shares some important news with you? Right? Maybe something exciting, or maybe something serious, or maybe even something shocking. And what's so difficult when you're the recipient of news like that is those words, please don't say anything to anyone else. Please keep this to yourself. That is hard because human nature wants to talk, right? When you receive some information, you're just dying to share it with someone else. But to their credit, they didn't say a single word to the other disciples, but they were still confused. Why would Jesus tell us not to say anything to anybody else? And why was he talking about Elijah? Mark's account here doesn't spell out why Jesus referenced Elijah as they were walking down the mountain. But Matthew's gospel gives us the answer. In Matthew 17, verses 11 through 13, it says this, Jesus replied, Elijah is indeed coming to get everything ready. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. But he wasn't recognized, and they chose to abuse him. And in the same way, they will also make the Son of Man suffer. Here's the answer. Then the disciples realized he was talking about John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist? We were introduced to him way back in the first message in this series in chapter 1. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he came wearing clothes made of coarse camel hair. He wore this leather belt around his waist. He ate grasshoppers and wild honey. But not only that, he paved the way for Jesus. In his day, John the Baptist was like the modern-day Elijah, a modern-day prophet. But not only was John the Baptist the forerunner to Jesus, he himself would also suffer and die. But it wouldn't stop with John the Baptist, and it wouldn't even stop with Jesus. As they walked down that mountain, and when Jesus told them not to say anything to anybody else, and that he himself would have to suffer, they were getting a glimpse of their own future suffering. James became the first of the apostles to be martyred. Peter soon followed. John was banished to a remote island. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? That's the question here at hand. 
That's the question that was asked by these disciples. And so as they stood there on the mountaintop and watched Jesus' appearance change before their eyes, they got a glimpse of his glory. But as they made their way down the mountain, Jesus reminded them that first comes the suffering, then comes the glory. We cannot have glory without the suffering. I mentioned earlier that our junior high students, they came home down the mountain. Our high school students, they are going up the mountain today. And then they'll come back down the mountain. If you've ever been to a Christian camp, you know that on the last night of camp, it's a special night. Usually there's a, a fire, there's s'mores, and then there are testimonies that are shared. And, and oftentimes you'll hear students say things like this. When I return home down the mountain, I want to live a changed life. When I go down the mountain, I want to be different. You see, there's something special about a mountaintop experience. But did you know all the hard work takes place down in the valley? This is glorious up here. Oh, it's spectacular. Look at the stars. Oh, the, the crisp air. I feel so close to God. That's not the hard work. The hard work is when you come down to the daily grind in the valley. All this to say, mountaintop experiences are important. They are absolutely important to the Christian life. They are, in, they are important because they refresh us and recharge us for all the hard work that awaits us down the mountain. I have a question for you all. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Think about that. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? I have. In my final year in college, I went to a retreat in Big Bear with my campus ministry. And it was in my senior year, and we only had a couple months left until I graduated college. And at that time, I was headed toward law school. And everything pointed toward law school in my senior year in, high, in college. But then in the days and weeks leading up to that retreat, I started thinking, hmm, maybe God's calling me into a different direction and into a full-time ministry. And so at that re retreat up in Big Bear, it gave me an opportunity to spend concentrated time with God, seeking His will, praying, searching His will for me. 
And up at that retreat site in Big Bear, 31 years ago, I remember vividly, for the very first time in my entire life, verbalizing the words, I'm going into ministry. And when I heard myself saying those words, I'm going into ministry, the most incredible feeling overcame me. And so I, I went and I told all my friends there at the retreat, I'm going into ministry. God's calling me and I'm going into ministry. And I think all my friends, they kind of knew that that was the path all along. Maybe I was a slow one. So they were all thrilled. And they congratulated me. They hugged me. They encouraged me. I remember that mountaintop experience vividly, even though it was 31 years ago. Now, on that mountaintop, I knew that ministry was not going to be easy. I knew that. I knew that ministry was going to take so much hard work. You see, I grew up in a pastor's home. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. So I saw the struggles and the hardships that my dad went through. I saw the struggles that my mom endured, that our whole family had to endure. I still remember many of the church conflicts. I remember as a little kid observing church conflicts. I remember as a little kid observing all the people who needed extra grace. I also remember the Saturday nights where my siblings and I, as little kids, we would fold the Sunday bulletins every Saturday night for church the next day. I remember as a teenager driving the church van to pick up all the other little kids for Bible study. As a teenager, you could do that back then. Did you know that? <laughs> and, and parents, they didn't care. They trusted me. So I knew on that mountaintop when I made the decision to follow God's calling, I knew that it was not going to be easy. But what the last 31 years of ministry has taught me is that it's even harder than what I thought it was going to be 31 years ago. There's an ongoing joke amongst pastors. Whenever we have to deal with a difficult matter, we say, oh, they didn't teach us that in seminary. <laughs> there was no class for that in seminary. Ministry is hard. But ministry is absolutely rewarding. Following Jesus is hard. It is so hard, but it's absolutely rewarding. There's suffering, but glory awaits us. Peter, James, and John, they got a glimpse of that glory. But it was just a small foretaste of what awaits them in eternity. Follow along as I read to you this quote from one commentator that just really encouraged my soul today. Many 
in the church today suffer from a form of Bible amnesia. They remember only the parts that promise wealth, happiness, and glory, and forget or fail to listen to the calls for self-sacrifice, suffering, and bearing one's cross. They want to skip suffering 101 and move on to advanced placement in glory 909. The Gospel of Mark emphasizes that the Messiah must shoulder a cross, embrace humility, and renounce brute force. And his disciples must do the same if they bear Christ's name. It simultaneously challenges me and also encourages my soul because we are not alone in this. We are all in it. And we are all going to suffer. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What does it mean for us as Christ followers? I want to leave you with one final encouragement from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Here's what he says about suffering and glory. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. If it's been a long time since you've had a, since you've had a mountaintop experience, maybe it's time to go drive up one of our local mountains. Now, I'll say this. Mountaintop experiences are not intended to be had every weekend. You don't have a mountaintop experience every week or every month or even every year. In fact, if you can have a mountaintop experience or a handful of mountaintop experiences your entire life, hey, that is good. Not everything qualifies as a mountaintop experience. But maybe if you've not had a mountaintop experience ever or in a long, long time, it's time to go up to Big Bear, Baldy, Mammoth. Go up and experience a glimpse of glory so you can come back down and do all the hard work. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the glimpse that you gave to Peter, James, and John on that mountaintop. Thank you for reminding them that glory awaited them. But before they experienced glory, they suffered and they died in Christ's name. As followers of Jesus today, we will also face shame and humiliation and we might suffer and some have died in the name of Jesus.
but glory awaits us. So help us to be faithful in suffering, knowing that glory is coming. Thank you for the reminder through your word today. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for teaching us in a way that would transform our lives. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.